you know, it's great because in this season, we have been following this book by Martin Copenhaver. Our, our kids are following the same questions that we are asking on Sundays, which are the same questions that we are talking about in our small groups and hopefully in the books that you are having a chance to read, um, if they were mailed to you at your house. Um, the question that we are talking about today is this really difficult question that Jesus poses to the disciples when he says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? It comes after this really well-known part of scripture. If you've ever heard of the golden rule, um, treating others, you, you are instructed to treat others as you wish to be treated. This question comes immediately after that passage. And it's all within the context of loving our enemies, treating others as we would like to be treated, asking ourselves this question, if it's a credit to love those who love us, all of it is within the context of how we treat the people that we just don't like and that just don't like us. So with that in mind, I'm going to invite you to join me in reading Luke 6, verses 32 through 34. Again, this comes right after, do to others as you would have them do to you. And then Jesus continues by saying this, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. Friends, as we contemplate what it means to have these questions asked of us, these complex and difficult, hard questions, I invite you to join me as we pray for God's presence. God, it is for your spirit that we reach out, that we want to latch hold of, that we want to carry us through the moments that we don't know how to navigate, that we want to provide us wisdom to these questions that we just don't have good answers to. We remember, God, that you are the God who teaches through questions who had criticism for those who valued the answers and who continually confounded the answers that we were so sure of with even more questions. Speak to our hearts today. Give us wisdom to understand. And even more so, give us courage to be able to go forward into the world responding to these questions in a way that is honoring to you. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Love and loyalty go hand in hand, so much so that it can be difficult for us to tell them apart at times. We don't always expect love to be returned to us, but we almost always expect loyalty in return for our love. Let me give you an example. We might lend money to a friend who is down on their luck with absolutely no expectation that they will ever pay us back. But we do expect that they will be loyal enough to treat us respectfully, to not intentionally harm us, and maybe even to protect us from others whom they know might be trying to harm us or slander us or hurt our feelings. Or say, Sometimes we might provide 
comfort for someone who is grieving a loss without any expectation of ever receiving a thank you note or even an acknowledgement that we reached out. But we often do expect that that person will remember us when we are in our own time of grief, that that person will show us compassion when we are in a need of compassion. Not many of us love others expecting a perfectly equal return on our love. But we do expect some level of loyalty from the people that we share our love with. Of course, there is another side to the social contract. If someone accepts our love and then later betrays us, it is socially acceptable for us to walk away. In fact, we are expected to walk away. If we stay, if we forgive, if we remain in that relationship with the hope of transformation, if we continue to love that person in faith that there will be a different outcome next time, then we are the ones who are labeled as foolish or blind or just stupid. If we forgive someone, who has betrayed our loyalty, we are often the ones who are seen as people that are deserving of being betrayed. Let me give you an example. Um, I don't know if any of you here are fans of the streaming television show, Ted Lasso. Anyone? All right, a couple, all right. Ted Lasso is about this affable football coach from Kansas who moves to England to coach a professional soccer club. And each time that Ted Lasso meets with the owner of the club, her name is Rebecca, he brings acts of love with him. He brings her cookies that he has made himself. He offers compassionate understanding as she navigates a very public and very humiliating divorce. And he shoulders her condescending attitude with charm and self-deprecation. Ted Lasso then goes on to use his charm and kindness to transform the entire soccer team and the staff with it. He builds trust among the players. He identifies unappreciated skills and talents with his staff and allows them opportunities to live out those talents. And he makes teamwork personal instead of just professional. But throughout his first season, the owner of the soccer club works behind Ted's back to sabotage the team's success. Without his knowledge, she traded his best player, even though he had asked that she keep him. She set him up to have compromising photos of him released to a local tabloid. She forced him into an interview that, with a journalist who was intent of humiliating Ted Lasso on the national stage. Ted makes extra effort to show her love and kindness, but she doesn't return it an ounce, not even in loyalty. For much of the first season, Ted is publicly viewed as a fool for the way that he meets everyone's condescension with his unwavering commitment to kindness. At the end of the first season, Rebecca meets Ted in his office and confesses it all. Every last treacherous thing she's done, 
as well as the anger and resentment that she was carrying in her heart. After she apologizes, there's a lot of silence. We watch Ted nod his head and then shake his head, maybe in disappointment or disbelief. He then stands up and walks around his desk to face her. And as he moves, she tells him that she would completely understand if he would like to quit or call the press. She knows how awful this has been. And with a look of determination and maybe a little bit of grief and maybe a hint of surprise, Ted looks at her and tells her, I forgive you. To which Rebecca replies with, what? Why? Because she is stunned. Because that goes against the social contract that we have all agreed to. She replies that way because her lack of loyalty made his rejection inevitable. Why would he take on the extra emotional, mental, and spiritual burden of forgiving her when he could just walk away from her? withhold his love when he could just reject her. It doesn't compute by our social rules. Forgiveness does not compute. But by the social rules of the kingdom of God, forgiveness is the key. Martin Luther King Jr. once wrote an essay called Loving Your Enemies, in which he said this. He said, to our most bitter opponents, we say, We shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. Throw us in jail, and we shall still love you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children, and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us until we are half dead and we shall still love you. But be ye assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom, not only for ourselves, We shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process. And our victory will be a double victory. What Martin Luther King Jr. is talking about here is creating an intentional division in our hearts between love and loyalty so that our capacity for love might expand beyond the bounds that loyalty would constrain us. And that is also what Jesus is talking about in our scripture passage for today. These questions that Jesus asks us about love, they're strange questions because they put love in conversation with credit. They highlight that internal transaction that we make in the quiet of our hearts as we negotiate with ourselves about how we are going to treat the person who is standing in front of us. Jesus says, 
If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Jesus follows that last question by saying, even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again, but love your enemies, do good and lend expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great and you will be children of God. In other words, Jesus is telling his followers that if we love the people who credit us our love and loyalty, then we have received the benefit of our love right then and there. But if we love people who will never credit us for our love, not in loyalty, not in appreciation, not in recognizing it in any way, then we will receive the benefit of our love in eternity. Loving those who credit us with our love provides us instant returns. But loving those who don't credit us provides us a long-term investment. You could even say an eternal one. It is one of these shocking reversals of God's kingdom. Loving our enemies, it makes us look foolish in the world that we live in, just like it made Ted Lasso look foolish on TV. But loving our enemies also inspires something in our humanity. The kind of inspiration that changes human systems of power, like Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights movement. It's the kind of inspiration that softens our hearts and that takes away our shame. I remember a particularly vivid display of a community that went out of its way to love someone who hated them. Maybe you remember it too. In 2006, I accepted my first call to a church in Westchester, Pennsylvania, just west of Philadelphia, which is a short drive away from Lancaster, which has a large Amish community living within it. And the day after my installation at the church as one of their pastors, a man named Charles Roberts drove to the Amish schoolhouse, divided the girls from the boys, and then shot 10 of those little girls ranging from the age of 6 to 13 years old. It was a dramatic, hate-filled tragedy. Five of those little girls died, but so many more live with scars even today. But on the day of the shooting, a grandfather of one of the murdered girls warned some of his younger relatives to not hate the killer. Another Amish father reminded his family that Roberts had a mother and a wife and a soul and that he was now standing before a just God. A spokesperson for the Roberts family said that an Amish neighbor comforted the Roberts family hours after the shooting and extended forgiveness to them. The Amish community members visited and comforted Robert's widow, Robert's parents, Robert's parents-in-law. One Amish man held Robert's sobbing father in his arms for as long as an hour just to comfort him. 
The Amish community set up a charitable fund for the family of the shooter, and about 30 members of that Amish group attended Robert's funeral, also inviting the widow of the killer, Marie Roberts, to attend the funeral of one of the murdered victims. Marie Roberts soon wrote an open letter to her Amish neighbors thanking them for their forgiveness and grace and mercy. She wrote this. She said, Your love for our family has helped to provide the healing we so desperately need. Gifts you've given have touched our hearts in a way that no words can describe. Your compassion has reached beyond our family, beyond our community, and is changing our world. And for this, we sincerely thank you. Sounds familiar. Like the words of Martin Luther King Jr. We will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day, we shall win freedom but not only for ourselves. My friends, how has our shared social contract that binds love and loyalty limited our capacity to love as Jesus asks us to love? How has our expectation of loyalty in return for our love blinded us to the opportunities that we have to win freedom, not only for ourselves, not only for others, but for the world? Have we linked together love and loyalty when really all of the time we should have been linking together love and suffering? And if it is our capacity to suffer that expands our capacity to love, then how willing are we to expand? These are the questions that Jesus asks, my friends. And so how will your life and how will mine reflect the way we answer?